Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. For this edition of Policy in a Pint, we're taking a look at women running for office in California. There's a groundswell of women running for all types of political office all around the nation. But here in California, the bluest state of them all, it's not as easy as you would think. Women actually lost seats in the state legislature during the last two elections. But the hashtags of Me Too, We Said Enough, and Women's March show that women are a political force. And already, just three months into election year 2018, women candidates in California are showing they're not going to do politics as usual. We're at Arcade Underground in Old Sacramento to talk with women running for political office and the women who recruit and train female candidates to win. They talked about the upsides and challenges for women candidates running in California, what has changed for better and for worse after election 2016, and what they predict will happen in this current election year. So welcome to California Groundbreakers. We're a civic engagement organization focusing on innovators doing groundbreaking things around the state of California. And these are cocktail conversations that we have to make quote-unquote dry topics, quote-unquote tough topics, more relevant and more relatable to you as voters, as residents, as taxpayers, as Californians. So tonight we're holding one of our Policy in a Pints, which is a monthly discussion on politics, policy, everything that comes out of the capital that affects us as taxpayers, voters, residents. And this year we're gonna be doing a lot on 2018 election uh, ballot initiatives and campaigns. The topic this evening is women running for office because there's a groundswell of women running for all types of political offices all over the nation. But here in California, we are a very blue state, maybe the bluest of them all. It's not as easy as you think running for office. We've never had a female governor. And I think, if I'm correct, we've actually lost seats in the state legislator, legislature in the 2016 election. So there's still a lot of uh, obstacles, brick walls, that women have to bust through, climb over. But obviously, me too. We have We Said Enough here in California. We did a discussion about that uh, in January about uh, We Said Enough and sexual harassment in the Capitol, which is really, really interesting. Uh, obviously, in Alabama, the election between Roy Moore and Tony Jones sh showed that women are a political force. And already it, here in California, we've been reading articles that women uh, candidates are not are showing that they're not going to do politics as usual. So obviously we have some four great panelists here, four women who are running for office, who are helping others to run for office, get more involved in government politics and the election process overall. So I just want to say before we get started, a few thanks to people who helped make this panel discussion possible. We're holding this event here in Arcade Underground, which is in Old Sacramento, a very cool basement space that we used to be on the ground floor of the city of Sacramento before it flooded. And uh, I want to say special thanks to Christina Acosta, the manager of Arcade, for putting this together. Also, people who helped me get the panelists here, Eileen Zong of Ignite California, Sergio Lopez from Amanda Renteria's campaign, Emma Lindsay Severns, I hope I'm saying her name right, of Regina Bateson's campaign, thank you very much. 
I also want to thank my board of directors who are here helping me out tonight, Scott Eggert, Ken Barnes, J.E. Pano. Thank you very much. I want to, of course, thank the panelists. You're very busy, so I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. And, of course, to you, the audience, for thank you. <laughs> thank you for coming out, especially on a day where it was just going to be thunderstorms and lightning, so I appreciate it. For the podcast listeners, we're going to have about uh, an hour, well, half an hour of Q&A by me, the moderator, followed by audience Q&A. And I just want to say to the panelists and everyone, I don't introduce the panelists. They introduce themselves because they know themselves best. And so I don't want to put you on the spot, but I always like to know a little personal information about you uh, so we all can identify you as not just the uh, campaign runner or this, but, you know. So my brief, my question for you besides your name and your organization or what you're running for is a personal note, if you could name a woman who has worked in a local government position, state, federal, and has inspired you to do what you are doing today, if you can just uh, explain who that is and why. So let's start with a woman on my right. Hello, I am Amanda Renteria, and I am running for governor of California. Uh, a woman um, that comes to mind just off the bat is my mom. She was, um, she was born in, she's Mexican-American, born in LA, but started off as a farm worker in the fields going from camp to camp, and then worked as a secretary at my high school for about 32 years. And when she retired, she decided, I'm gonna run for school board. And she ended up winning, and today is the only woman on the school board in my little town. Um, what's, your, what's your town? Uh, What's the town? Woodlake. Woodlake Wood Lake High School. And so when I think about somebody that really does embody who we are, the women's movement, um, can't help but think of my mom. So good evening. My name is Rachel Michelin. I'm the CEO for California Women Lead. Um, our mission is to increase the number of women serving in elected and appointed office in California. You know, I have the privilege of traveling all over California and meeting just such amazing women who are doing amazing things and hearing their story, and all of them inspire me. But, you know, when, I, when I'm asked this question, particularly when I talk to young women, um, I had the privilege of interning for Senator Dianne Feinstein right out of college in Washington, D.C., and um, it was an amazing experience when you're 21, 22 years old, just starting out, not knowing what you're going to do. And, she really inspired me. She's, she pointed me out and said, I really think you have what it takes to be successful in the political arena. And the ironic thing is that, turns out she was a founder of this organization that I run today. So I think it was kind of kismet that I'm at where I am, but I always remember that because I remember the important work that you do. You never know the impact you're gonna have on someone when you just take the time to point out and tell them, I believe in you, I think you can do it. Good evening, everyone. My name is Kula Koenig, and I am the president of the Sacramento chapter of BOWAPA, and that's Black Women Organized for Political Action. Um, and I have two, so that's okay. <laughs> um, one of them is actually a friend of mine that I've known for a long time. Her name is Melanie Rommel, and she um, is now uh, deputy chief for the, the um, with the Department of Consumer Affairs and in their um, Cannabis Bureau. But Melanie has what I love about her is she always um, reaches out to other women and um, help 
us to move up as well. She doesn't just move up on her own, and I really um, admire that um, about her. And also, Assemblywoman Shirley Weber, I kind of have a crush on her, because here, here's the deal, right? She keeps it so real, and I feel like she is the moral compass of the state legislature, and she does not shy away from tough issues, and she makes you believe in politics, and um, that's who inspires me. Thanks so much. Now, I'm Regina Bateson, and I'm running for Congress in California's 4th District. Now, the 4th District is not necessarily the most democratic part of California, but one of the women who really inspires me is one of two Democrats who's almost won this district before. Back in the last year of the woman, in 1992, Pat Malberg ran for this seat. And when I was starting my campaign almost a year ago, I had people coming to me, Democrats in our district, saying, this is the year we can win this seat, but I don't think a woman can do it. I think we need to get a man running for the seat to have the best chance we can of winning. And I was able to go back to the data, to go back to some of the news coverage, and go back to Pat Malberg's campaign and show them that there is really a path for a woman to take back this seat. Um, she got about 49% of the vote and really almost got there. Um, I later got to meet Pat. She showed up at one of our house parties. I was so excited. And we discovered that my logo is really similar to the logo she used back then. I didn't even know that when I chose it, but her logo was the Golden Poppy, and that's ours again this year. So she's helping with the campaign a bit now, advising us, and I'm so grateful for her leadership and for forging that path ahead that we're now following. And Regina, I guess for those of us who don't know what the boundaries of the 4th District are, in general, what cities or counties are in the 4th District? Absolutely. So the 4th District is one of the most beautiful districts in the entire country. We have Lake Tahoe, Yosemite National Park, and Kings Canyon National Park. So we cover a lot of the Sierra and the foothills in California, but we actually encompass some of the suburbs of Sacramento as well. So our district starts in Roseville, which is my hometown, and includes some of the larger suburbs to the east of Sacramento. So Rockland, El Dorado Hills, um, Lincoln, we go through Auburn. You know, we're basically east of Sacramento going into the Sierra and the foothills. All right, thank you. Thank you very much for being here. So I'm gonna start off with questions first for the candidates. And Amanda, I'm gonna start with you, because uh, you two are, are already making waves with the beginning of your campaigns. Amanda, you entered I, what, less than a month ago, so it's been, um, you, you entered, there's already a lot of people in there. It was almost to the wire. I wanted to know what made you decide to run for governor, I mean, so quickly. And uh, especially when it's a crowded field, there's not much time to jumpstart a major campaign for governor of California. So thank you for asking me that question, because a lot of people have that question. Um, I, so my history here, I w just came off the, I was on the presidential campaign and then I was chief of operations for California's Department of Justice, $850 million budget, a thousand people. Um, one, I just want to say how important that work has been over the last year and I loved doing it. When we look at our politics right now and Democrats, actually everyone says we need new faces and new perspectives and new ideas and we need women to step up and we need people of color to step up and we need our young generation to step up. 
And what I struggled with is we do need someone that represents the future as we think about our governor. And I didn't see that happening on the stage. I didn't see that happening on the stage in terms of the issues that were being brought up. I didn't see that happening on the stage in terms of tapping into the energy that is actually out there. And at some point in your life, you do look around and you say, who's going to do it? And in all fairness, I hoped, thought somebody else might jump in. And at some point in your life, you kind of look in the mirror and you say, I'm in my mid-40s. I am building the future for my kids and their kids and other young people who are looking at this race. And they're not seeing the new generation up there. And we're California. I traveled over 30 different states, two territories in 2016. We should be leading this progressive edge. And right now, I mean, I spent my time at Department of Justice defending a lot of our values, but California can be so much more than that. We can be the example of what it means to be American progressive values. And the way we do that is by proving that we have a new generation here in leadership at the top of the ticket leading our state. And I couldn't sit back and watch it without doing my part in this election. That's why I jumped in. All right. And Regina, you too. I think the first I read about you was in a Sacramento Bee story, I think last week, when uh, you had, I guess, I can't remember the headline, it was basically like, basically something like, well, she said she wasn't going to run at the state Democratic Party endorsed someone else. They did endorse someone else, but she decided to run because the way that the process happened wasn't the best way. And so I wanted to see, there's a lot of, a lot of attention about your decision to enter or stay in the race um, when the party endorsed. So what made you decide to go against the grain and keep going with your campaign? So I'd like to start by uh, taking a step back and you know telling you how our campaign got to this point. Um, because we actually did start nearly a year ago in the district. And throughout the campaign, you know, I was the first person to step up and jump in and start running against Tom McClintock. Um, I've consistently had the most grassroots support in our district. So I'm really grateful a lot of our volunteers are here tonight. This tends to happen whenever we have an event that our volunteers kind of flood the audience. Um, and that's a good thing. And they've always been the strength of the campaign. Um, I was not recruited by anyone from, you know, sort of high up in the Democratic Party to run for this seat. It was my high school teacher, a former high school teacher, who encouraged me to run. And that's always been the strength of the campaign, um, has been our real connection with people in the district, a lot of whom are not affiliated with any political party. And that's increasingly true in California in general. Um, so we've had the most volunteers, uh, done really well in the straw polls and the votes that have been held after debates in our district. And uh, I actually won the support of most of the Democratic clubs in the district, which are the grassroots level membership organizations for the party. Um, you know, I really liked what I saw in terms of how the party was organizing itself kind of early and in the middle of the race in our district. I think it's really important if we want to expand the map and empower and engage new activists and continue building a lasting movement for change to be engaging and respecting our grassroots activists. And that was happening throughout most of this process. However, um, I became very concerned when the delegates from our district 
decided to vote in a different direction at the state convention, um, a direction that actually went contrary to uh, the expressed will of most people in our district. And so that was a tough decision for me. Um, I mean, I did seriously consider getting out of the race, but people came clamoring and flocking back to me saying, no, stay in. And we actually do have some really unique strengths, a really strong message that connects all over the political spectrum in our district. Um, and so we just took a look at things and said, you know, we've got the same strengths we always have. Um, I think it's really important uh, to stand up for the values and the reasons that I'm running in the first place. And so we've continued to grow the campaign uh, even since the state convention in San Diego. So Rachel, I wanted to ask you, um, since you run California Women Lead, I was looking in the website and I saw a report that tied into a political Politico story I read about how women in California running for office, it's not always that easy. And this report said, I'm just paraphrasing here, uh, in 2016, women in California were outnumbered as candidates by at least four to one. And the June 2016 primary placed some women in prime positions to win the races in November, but eliminated, eliminated many from the final race, and that further narrowed the number of female candidates. And that resulted in a loss of seats for women in the state legislature and in the congressional delegation. Although apparently women serving in county offices, um, that, that number increased. So that was the upside. But here, quote, in 2018, there will be a few opportunities to, for women to run for the st state legislature, but this will be our last opportunity to try and make up some of the losses we've experienced in previous election cycles. So then, what is it looking like in 2018? Are there better prospects? And this, is it really the la uh, one of the last chances? That sounds so scary. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, what happened in retrospect is that when voters passed redistricting, um, we had an independent redistricting process that took effect in 2012 in the 2012 election. And what happened was in California, there were a number of open seats, um, great opportunities for people. It's always easier to win an open seat than to run against an incumbent. But in 15 of those open seats, there were zero women candidates. So right there, we lost in 2012. Um, it's interesting you bring up the County Board of Supervisors because yes, we went up. We went up to 72 women county supervisors out of 296. So it's still not a, a great number. In fact, um, County of Riverside has never elected a woman to their Board of Supervisors in the history of the county. Now there's some really strong women running this cycle, so hopefully that changes. Um, you know, 2018 will be interesting. You, you are seeing uh, women taking on incumbents. Um, it's, it's difficult to do because it's hard to fundraise. And in California, to run for a legislative seat costs somewhere upwards of over a million dollars. And most of the time, it's not the candidate that's putting in all the money, it's the special interest groups that do it through independent expenditures. And most of the time, they're gonna support an incumbent regardless of gender. Um, 2018, actually, it, it, it's going to be a, a, a mixed bag. Um, there's actually fewer open seats in 2018. There's nine open state Senate seats in 2020. But from our perspective, we're really gearing up for 2022. We see that as a huge opportunity because, again, we will have redistricted seats. You know, my philosophy is that every legislative seat is a woman's seat. We can elect a woman. We, I can find a woman that fits the district in every single um, legislative seat in the state. 
And we want to build that farm team so that when we have these, because no one will know what these redistricted seats are, we'll have women ready to run. Um, the challenge is getting women to run for local office. In California, women represent only 28% of city council seats. And out of the top 10 most populated cities, only one, Libby Schaff in Oakland, is a woman. So, you know, to your point, it's, I always find it fascinating. I'll get calls from Washington, D.C. or back east and, oh, California must be so great for women to run for office because, you know, we have two, we have two strong women state, or, uh, U.S. Senators, we have, you know, the Speaker of the first woman Speaker of the House, but when you peel the layers back, you don't see that. Now, today was a great day. Everyone know what happened today. We swore in the first woman um, President Pro Tem of the State Senate, you know, Tony Atkins, so that's huge. We've never had that before. She's going to be an awesome uh, Pro Tem of the Senate. Um, we have two women running the Senate. The minority leader is a woman. So we're slowly making progress. We're seeing more women running statewide in 2018. But I still think there's a lot of work to be done. We really need to get that farm team built. We really need to get women engaged early, getting that experience in public policy. That's why we support getting more women on appointed boards, particularly through the governor's office. We actually have the highest percentage of women serving on gubernatorial boards of any state in the country. So that's great. But there's a lot of work to do. And I try to caution women to think that, you know, we're so progressive, we're on the cutting edge. There's still a lot of work to do in order to get equality and parity um, in elected positions across the state of California. And Kula, last but not least, I wanted to talk to you uh, specifically about an election that got a lot of attention in Alabama. Obviously, Roy, Roy Moore and Tony Jones. And I guess for the first time in a quarter of a century, Alabama elected a Democrat for senator. And it was due in big part to the fact that 98% of black women in the state of Alabama voted for Jones. And that was a very big... A very big deal. So it showed that women of color have clout as a voting bloc. I think you were quoted, uh, Fox 40 did a, a profile on that, and you were quoted in that. Um, it, that may not necessarily be the obvious case in California. So I was wondering, from what you're seeing in, in your organization, uh, do they have a, do they have that clout as a voting block or as candidates right now in California, particularly now after so much, so much, you know, activity and passion? Um, if if they do or not, what should the various political parties, Republican, Democrat, Green, Independent, be doing right now to help women of color get into the race, get primed, trained, ready to run and win? So I think, you know, the sad part is that it took that race um, between Doug Jones and Roy Moore for people to really start paying attention that black women have been really showing up and showing out for so long. And it was like, hello, we've been doing this, you know? <laughs> like, like th th this has been happening. And um, well, the difference with that race was we decided that you know, really enough is enough, and it's not just going to be you are expecting us to show up. We showed up for Hillary, we were there, you know, um, we've been there consistently, even, you know, but it's okay, so what, right? Um, and I don't know if people, you know, right after that, actually, there was a letter to the chairman of the Democratic National Committee saying, okay, where's the return on the investment, right? How are you as a Democratic Party um, showing that you support um, black women, black women who are running for office, 
yes, we're showing up to vote, we're showing up to vote reliably, but we also need to be in positions of power. Um, and that's one of the things, honestly, black women organized for political action really tries to do, is to put black women in um, positions of power, whether it's a board or a commission or an elected office, and really build that pipeline as well. Um, but to be honest, we need support. Um, it doesn't just happen. We're also organizations that need resources. And so um, if the Democratic Party really wants to show um, that it appreciates the loyalty of black women, that it doesn't take us for granted, what it needs to do is say, okay, here's an organization like Black Women Organized for Political Action or other organizations that are working to get black women elected, maybe we'll give you some resources, some funding, so that you can actually build better infrastructure to train women, um, to be able to build that pipeline from high school. You know, we have a fellowship program, um, Boapa State, but it's also strapped for resources too, to be able to say, we value you, and here's what we wanna do to make sure that we can build this pipeline for black women to also be in positions of power. So um, even for Boapa Sacramento, we develop our endorsement questionnaire, and one of the questions we ask is, you know, what are you gonna do to make sure that black women are in positions of power. So we have a black women-centric questionnaire for candidates because it's, it's important. So my next question is, my next question, I'm gonna start off with uh, Amanda and Regina, but I, I think this could also, uh, Rachel and Kula, you could chime in too if you'd like, about making waves. Um, obviously, Regina talked about the, the Democratic Party and you know deciding to stay in, and Amanda, besides you know coming in, uh, to the race, you made waves for your comments on Gavin Newsom should be stepping out because of what he did, the extramarital affair, and that got a lot of attention. I'm curious though in terms of, obviously that got a lot of attention, what's the importance of making waves and taking those actions that you did in this particular election year 2018? Do you think that will benefit you or do something differently in a way that it, than it wouldn't have two years ago, four years ago? Because it seems like election two, 2016 was changed things up and so do you feel like your decisions also are different now than they would have been taken differently before 2016 does that make sense who'd like to start amanda all right um so l let me clarify it's not it's not the affair i called out it's the elected official having sex with subordinates that I called out. And the idea that too many people are talking about being in toxic work environments and what that means for women in every industry, but particularly in an industry that's supposed to role model how other organizations should behave. Me calling that out um, <laughs> wasn't easy. This is about speaking truth to power. It's about talking about our own truth. And in all fairness, I think when I think back to 2014 and two years ago, I'm not sure I came to truth with my own Me Too story, much less being able to speak truth to power in the way that I am today. And I think that is true for a whole host of people today. So I'm not sure 2014, if I think back to then, we were there. We've become a lot braver over the course of the last year. We've become a lot more powerful and understood our own power over the course of a year. And that's what's important. And so whether or not this is gonna benefit me personally in the next two years or four years or when I think about it out in the future, that's not what this is about. It's are we gonna be changing our future for the next generation? 
And so making waves is only, for me, the way I think about it, is only important if it's actually changing the future for the better. And right now, we need to be talking about and doing the kind of things that can change the future for the better for everybody. Regina. Yeah, so I have always been a very independent person and have never hesitated to share my opinions. Anybody who's known me for a long time can attest to that. Um, but, you know, my decision to stay in the race and to continue building our very strong campaign wasn't, that wasn't the way I framed it in my mind. I didn't think about it as a decision to make waves. Um, I actually think that, you know, my choice to stay in is quite similar to the choices that have been made by dozens of other candidates across the state in districts where the Democratic Party endorsed a candidate um, in a congressional race. But lots of folks are running very strong campaigns. Um, and I mean, in our case, we outfundraised our incumbent last quarter, um, for example. So we're showing great strength uh, that I think is really important to keep going. But talking about the climate a little bit, you know, the other thing that weighed really heavily on my decision um, was thinking about the importance of grassroots organizing. And I think that when the history books are written, there are two ways this can go when people look back at 2018 and these midterm elections and our statewide elections. Either this was the year when ordinary people stepped up, got involved in politics, and really made a difference. Or this was the year when ordinary people stepped up, got involved in politics, and in some cases got crushed by the machine, and got crushed by the system, and crushed and beaten back down by party insiders. And I think that's wrong if that's the takeaway at the end of the day. And for us having thousands of people engaged with our campaign across our district, um, that would have really sent the wrong message to them. If we said, hey, 67 people sitting in a room hundreds of miles away just told us to end our campaign, um, it would have been inexplicable to a lot of them. Um, so that's a big part of why I decided to continue and why I would really encourage anybody who's engaged in a grassroots movement to honor and respect the local voices um, because those are the folks that we need, not just fighting on my campaign, but standing up for Amanda's campaign. And who knows if uh, someone else is running a great campaign a few years down the road or, you know, I just was on the phone with somebody today who's actually gotten involved in a county supervisor race inside our district. Um, this is the broader movement that we need to be building and nurturing. And so I think that's why um, continuing to stay in the race really matters in this particular context this year. Rachel. What I found interesting is that very rarely do you hear someone say to a man, you're making waves. Um, and very rarely do you hear men being told to drop out of a race. And I see that all the time. A, a, a few years ago, I was asked to talk a woman out of a race. And I said, that's not what I do. And she ended up winning and, and beating the, the, the male because the party was all behind the gentleman in the race. So I think part of it is that it's this narrative that it's still there. Maybe it's, it's very you know, subtle, but women are supposed to play by different rules than men do when it comes to politics. And until we see more women stepping up and saying, no, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I'm going to run the campaign I can run. I'm going to say what I need to say. I'm going to be authentic to who I am. Um, you know, that's where we're going to see real change. But I just, when you were talking about it, I thought it was interesting that 
you, you rarely do you hear, I mean, even in the gubernatorial election, you know, you're not hearing them say, so-and-so should get out of the race because it's not your turn. I hear that all the time when it comes to women candidates. It's not your turn yet. You need to wait. And I just don't, I think that is something that, and a lot of times it might be other women who say it. And I think that my philosophy and, and our philosophy of California Women Lead is all women have an opportunity and they have a responsibility to be politically engaged and to find their path. And we need to support that. So I applaud both of these women for taking the risk and standing up to it because we need more women willing to do that and set that example if we are gonna see major changes in representation for women in elected office in California. Anne Kula. Yeah, and if I can just, I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg said this, that um, they asked, you know, when would there be equality like on the bench? And she said, when there were nine women justices. <laughs> and, and, and people were taken aback and it's like, no, but that's absolutely right. And I think that um, the, the, the beauty of, if there's a beauty in it, <laughs> I have to find silver lining in things in life, but of Donald Trump being elected is that we as women we have to, you know, we as black women, we say that we're our sister's keepers, right? So we have to be our sister's keepers. And so somebody is running to, to be there for them and give them that hope and lift them up because you have to ask someone, I think I say, I don't know, like 30 times a woman to really like actually do it. And I was just with friends coming here and they asked me, when are you going to run? And it scared me. But that's what we have to do. So I'm going to ask if people with questions want to start lining up at the mic. I, I have one more question I'm going to ask all panelists, but if you want to start lining up at the mic, we can take your questions after this one. Um, I guess on that note about uh, running, choosing not to run, being told it's not your turn, uh, again, there was this really good story, Politico, about it's just so many roadblocks. And they described how a Democratic Party activist in three very competitive races in Southern California uh, overlooked three candidates who were endorsed by Emily's List, which I think is the biggest organization uh, that that recruits and trains and 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 finds women to run uh, pro pro life. I think primarily, but but women candidates, they were supported by Emily's List. But the activists in the Democratic Party decided instead, by wide margins, to give their support to three men. And so it was interesting. They they did quote one of the um, women who was who's overlooked. Her name is Sarah Jacobs. She's age 29. She put a tweet out there, basically saying this is unjust, and you know she was not happy with it. And she was quoted in the story saying, "I'm obviously a young woman, and it's not the kind of candidacy that the old guard and the boys club really know what to do with." So my question for all of you, you can whoever wants to start, is it's election year 2018. What are the pros and cons of running as a young woman, as a first-timer? Because I think there's first-timers here on the panel. Um, how can you, not spin it, but can that be an advantage in, in a way, you know, young and, and, and first-time in the race? Um, and is, are you seeing the old guard, the boys' club, being shaken up in this year? What are you, you, what are you seeing in terms of young blood, uh, old guard, uh, how they are coming together or clashing. Just curious, who'd like to start with that? Regina. All right, as a younger female first-time candidate, I think I'll jump in here. Uh, so I think that in our district, being someone who is new to politics and an outsider to politics is actually a huge asset. 
you know, we know that, again, this varies by region, it varies by the race in some ways, but uh, in our race, we know that people are sick of career politicians, they're sick of machine politics, they are really frustrated with the political system, and they think it's broken, and they want to change. And that's what I can really credibly offer, being somebody who's from the community and loyal to the community and will put our interests first, rather than being beholden to outside sponsors or PACs or special interest groups um, who might be sponsoring other candidates in the race. So we see that as a real advantage in terms of uh, organizing and our path to victory in the district. But in terms of the intra-party dynamics, we have definitely observed um, a very strong clash between sort of the old guard and the new guard in our district. We've actually had people, uh, the gentleman who was quoted in the Sacramento Bee article about me, in fact, uh, is one example, but um, we've had people who are very critical of the fact that our campaign has mobilized new members to join their local democratic clubs. And the argument is, you went out and got too many people excited. You actually went out and persuaded too many people to jump into politics, to join our clubs, and to come join our organizations, and now when we have votes, they're flooding us and outnumbering us. It's like, yes, that is called democracy. Um, and so there is a very strong reaction that we've gotten back against that. And I think the only thing that's extraordinary in our race isn't my decision to be running, it isn't the decision to be continuing our very strong campaign, um, it's the reaction that we've gotten back from some local Democratic Party officials um, who have come down very hard and in a way that I think is gendered, um, using language about consensus, unifying, can't you just work together, can't you just be more agreeable about this, um, and in a way that we don't see in any other district in the state right now, um, and particularly not directed toward male candidates or candidates who are older and more established. Um, so I think that our message is we're here to stay, we're going to make positive changes, uh, but we're going to have our voices heard. And Kula, you'd like to add something? Right. I mean, I think that representation really matters. Um, I think about um, my little niece who's 10 and when she sees someone who's younger running, it, it, it's kind of like, wow, who maybe um, speaks differently, maybe they aren't as polished, but they're really passionate and they get what's going on, on the ground and they also get the issues. Um, and you can connect with people and I think that when you can, when you can see that, you can be inspired to maybe um, do something that you're afraid of, like, like run, because you see someone that maybe is not traditional, that's taking that path and you, and you see that, that possibility and, that, and that's all it takes to really spark that thought that maybe I can do it too, um, because you get to see that, that happening. And, and I, I appreciate, I think the applause is awesome, but if we could just <laughs> have it at the end or bef uh, after everyone's done talking, that would be great and speed, speed the podcast. So, so let's agree. start with, Ra yeah, Rachel. I agree. I think that when you, I, I ran for political office 10 years ago. I was um, pregnant at the time, which was a whole other story. Uh, but, you know, when you run an authentic campaign, um, and I was 10 years younger, um, you, you do set an example. And I had a lot of people, a lot of women say, if you can do this, maybe I can do this too. And that's one of the issues where, you know, we actually will be releasing a report shortly looking at the number of women who's filed for office in California um, pre-primary. And it, it, my guess is that even though there's a surge of women running, the numbers still will be, will be outnumbered by male candidates. 
and typically it's four to one. And I've been doing this for a long time. And so, you know, part of it is just getting more women to run. Because the more women you have out there, the more women you have at a candidates forum, the more women you see on the ballot, the more diverse groups of women that you have running, that's going to affect and have an influence on inspiring that next generation to run. You know, but there's all kinds of things you can get into when you see younger women running. We still have an older electorate. So it's harder to convince, you know, some of the, the regardless of party, to vote for the, the, some of the younger folks. They get a little nervous. Um, so you're still clashing against some of that, that age, that age kind of differences. But I also think, you know, one of my favorite sayings I learned from one of my mentors was that women are playing by political rules that were written by men. And until women get in positions of power and we change and rewrite the rules, we're never going to advance. And so when you look at the political party structure, when you look at the PAC structure, political action committees, special interest groups, I mean, here in Sacramento, they will spend millions upon millions of dollars in this election cycle, and 95% of the money decisions will be made by men. So until we also get women in positions to write checks, you know, and women in positions to direct money to women campaign, female campaigns, we're not going to change anything. And I always say this to women, it's, you know, how many of you have written a check to a woman candidate? Most women don't write checks to women candidates. You know, when I ran for office, most of my money came from men, and I run a women's organization. So, you know, that's part of it, too, that women are harder on women candidates. They don't write as big a checks to a woman candidate as to male candidates. We know this. There's data to prove it. And so until also women, we as women take responsibility and say we are going to get behind women candidates and we're going to write checks and we're going to be there and we're going to support them, we're going to introduce them to people who have access to money, because let's, let's all be honest, you have to have money to get elected. And that's the only way I think we're really going to change something. So until we do change the rules, we're continuing to be playing by these rules that are not written to help women advance in political power, both here in California and nationally. And Amanda. Um, we got to believe in our own power. And I mean this in two ways. You know, when I jumped into this race, I think there was all kinds of conspiracy theories. And if you actually listen to them, it was that some man guy told me to do what I'm doing. Pretty much all the stories have that same storyline. When I ran the first time, same thing. That somebody else told me to run. We as women, as we look at other women doing courageous things, we have to believe and know our own truth that when people say that about other women, we got to say, well, wait a second. I remember when I did something and they said the same thing about me. We got to know that we have our own power inside to make our own decisions to raise our hand and to be at the table. And when we hear them saying this about other women, we've got to step up and say, wait, well, wait a second. Really? Tell me your evidence. That's what true power is, not only for ourselves, but for our sisters out there to say, wait a second, really? You heard that? Tell me where. That kind of reality, that kind of power, and that kind of truth is really what ends up changing when people say things about other women or when people are harder about other women. 
We gotta call ourselves out and each other out and say, no, no, no. Did you talk to her? Because I'll call her up and I'll ask. Right? We gotta do that with each other and that's really the quiet power that is equally important to that dollar, to that vote, is making sure you have our sisters back in those quiet moments when people are questioning our own truths. So that's how I look at it. So let's have the first question at the mic. Thanks for kind of stealing my question, but I could modify it. Um, so my name is Rachel Ann Vanderwerf, and I'm actually running for a local flood control district. And it's really great to hear you all talking about that. But as a really young woman, it's, not, it's obvious by the way I look, I'm very young. What can we do to help bring other young women when we're running? I'll, I talk to other candidates who are running who are older, or have, even if they're not more experienced, but they maybe have more experience in life. How can we make sure that we're bringing younger candidates with us and bringing young people with us in our campaigns and in our movements? Kula. Sure. I would say um, putting them in positions of power to also be in your campaign, right? So I think of the campaigns that I worked for, it was man's campaign, but I was, you know, volunteer coordinator, then moving up to campaign manager and really working. And that's how you kind of learn the ins and outs and you get to meet people and you also kind of get that taste for politics, right? And kind of see how the sausage is made, for lack of a better word. But I think really is, is bringing people up and then being okay when someone messes up because they will and they're green and, and allowing for that and then, and, then, and then helping them to move up so that they're not um, demoralized or feel that, oh man, I messed up so I can't, this isn't for me, you know? And so I think it's really being okay with someone not being so polished but knowing that they have it inside of them and I think that's really, really important. Amanda. All right, so the next time you step up to that mic, it doesn't start with, I'm young. It starts with, I'm a rock star. I've done a lot of things in life. Yeah, I'm young too. But here's where we're gonna go, right? This is what we see guys do all the time. They don't step up to Mike and say they're young, right? They say, I'm, I'm the smart one in the room, right? Or like, I'm the cavalier that's gonna do this. Um, I think we've got to know that in ourselves and we've got to become comfortable in that space. And um, so yeah, that's, that's my advice. And when other women see you do it, they don't get embarrassed about their own accomplishments either, right? They step up and go, wait, she had the bravery to say that she was actually good and smart. And I'm going to do that too. Um, and I tell you, you never know who's watching or where they're watching as I see my five-year-old little girl step up to the mic and say, I am proud of who I am. I kind of look at it, I'm like, man, I didn't have that when I was that age. But she's taking a look at these women who are saying that as they step up to that mic. So you're not young, you're a rock star. I'm going to clarify. I'm not ashamed that I'm young at all. I think it's awesome. I have a master's degree in what I'm running for, so I'm, I'm very qualified. That, but that. just being young, other people look at me that way. Uh, I'm very proud to be a young woman who has a master's degree, so that's, I'm not ashamed of it. Awesome. I just wanted to clarify that. All right, next, next question. Yes. So 
Thank you so much, <clears throat> sorry for being here tonight. Very inspiring, I was so excited about this panel. And just the fact that you're running, um, regardless of whether you win or lose or whatever happens, it's, it's making a difference, so I just want all of you to know that. Um, for Regina, I would wanna say that I know you were running um, a, a year ago. I donated to your campaign through Moms on the Left. And we have. I live in Davis, we have lots of supporters, so reach out to us, all of you. There's people who do, can't vote for you, but would love to support you. Um, so my question, I'm trying to be succinct. Um, so I'm running for school board in Davis um, in the November election. And my, I just wanted to get a little advice because I tend to be outspoken and say what I think, but I'm finding as I'm campaigning, um, there's this kind of threading the needle where I don't want to necessarily step into controversial subjects and then end up in this brouhaha. So how do you manage that while you're campaigning? Do you avoid it? Do you, I mean, how do you, what do you do? Rachel? So I do a lot of coaching for women candidates. Um, one is staying focused on your message and why you are running and why people should vote for you. And remember that when people vote, ultimately it's what's in it for me, right? It's very selfish. And so really staying, I, a lot of times, especially when you run locally, you can get pulled in all kinds of different directions. And you just have to say, you know, as a school board member, that's not within that my jurisdiction. Here's why though I really think you should support me because I'm gonna do this for your kids. And remember school board, you're, you're, you're taking on people's most prized possessions which, which is their children. So you wanna develop that trust with them. But really staying focused on it and not letting people tell your story but tell your own story and be in control of your story and your reason why you're running. Because that's why, and being authentic and not trying to let other people morph you into what they want you to be, but be who you want to be, because people see right through that, especially as a woman candidate. I think women do have a little bit different of a standard where you know people can see if they're authentic or not. And I see a lot of women who, when they get away from who they really are, they end up losing because people don't know what they stand for. So just be very concise. This is what I'm about. This is my message. And stay true to that message and realize that there are gonna be people that just, you know, they're not gonna like you, and walk away. And don't let it get to you and find the people that will. Thank you. Thanks, Cindy. Next question. Hi, so you have done a lot of talking about the importance of women running for local office to be part of, you know, the farm team for bigger office down the road. But also here in California, we live in, like, I'm from San Diego, we have LA, we have San Francisco, which are some of the most expensive media markets in the world. So how do you recommend young women break through in those cities where, you know, everything is going to cost a lot of money, even a local race? Yeah, that's a good question. Who wants to tackle that? How about, okay, Amanda. Um, so a couple things that have changed, even since 2014, which is you have social media and social networks. And by the way, younger generation is so much better at this. So use the tools that you have, number one. Number two, don't be afraid to ask. Right? There is a lot of donors who really are looking for a new generation of folks who are excited and ready to run and ready to be involved and engaged. 
Sometimes it's literally 12 no's before you get a yes, but they are out there. And um, you know, I don't think we're all equipped for rejection all the time, but it is true, the truth of running and trying to raise money is a lot of rejection before you get a yes, but that is also a part of this whole process and you gotta just keep, keep believing that you're gonna get that and the hard work it takes to kind of own that space. But don't get discouraged that, that it's hard and there are people out there but they, they're there and you can pick them out and, um, but I also think what, four years from now, eight years from now, the way people run will be totally different. And by the way, all the young people are gonna shape how it's done. And so the networks and the online and the social media that you have will be, will be flipped. So the idea that commercials are the only way to go, those are very much declining in actual impact and effect. And the new forms are increasing. Now I think it might even be things we don't even know about right now. I don't watch TV, really. <laughs> right. I, I mean, I don't. <laughs> So don't, so don't think that those things discourage you from entering the race. You still need resources, but that's not the all in B game. Like, that's not it. You can do it. Regina. So I just wanted to add, I wanted to thank you for supporting the campaign. Um, I, but I wanted to say that there are new tools out there for fundraising also. So some of these dynamics we're discussing sound depressing, um, but there's an upside as well. So for example, I got started running because of a website called Crowdpack. And if that website did not exist, there would have been no pathway for me to become a viable candidate, um, being essentially a normal person <laughs> who didn't have a ton of political connections when I started. Um, but you know, that's an example of a site I would encourage you to take a look at that makes it easy to overcome some of these initial fundraising hurdles and maybe to do that through a large number of small dollar donations online. Um, it operates kind of similar to the way Kickstarter operates for other projects. And they've seen a real upsurge in younger people, women, and people of color who are able to launch viable campaigns um, because of that particular tool. And I also wanted to say that I think, um, at least in our campaign, some of the dynamics around donation patterns are changing um, or are quite different than what's been described here. So we actually just took a look before this event at our top 100 donors to the campaign, the people who have given the most money. And they're exactly half women and half men. Um, so I, and I've had women cold contact me because of Facebook <laughs> and because of that initial crowd pack site. I mean, back in April and well, actually May of last year, multiple different women who are really smart, powerful, interesting people who in some cases live in the Bay Area or in our own district reached out to me and said, they had decided that they wanted to find um, smart young women running for office and be those early backers and really help us financially. And so I think that the message is getting out there that if we want to see women in office, women need to step up and um, volunteer for campaigns, vote for women candidates, but also help fund their campaigns. So don't get discouraged. It's possible. And Rachel? You know, when you talk about San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego, um, one of the ways that I think is overlooked, I think that there's a lot of emphasis on getting women elected to office, which I absolutely agree and agree with. But, you know, there's all these local governments and even the state have all these appointed boards that you serve as an appointee to. Um, I currently serve as an appointee of Governor Brown and you get public policy experience, but people also, particularly at the local, I've served as in a local appointee, they see you in your community in action. And a lot of times, especially if you're younger, and they see you chairing a board, working on a planning commission, working on a transportation issues, working on public safety as an appointee, 
two things happen. Number one, the person who appointed you as an elected official, you're kind of saying, hey, this, this is a good person. I'm making them my appointee. I, I trust their, their decision-making ability. But number two, they see you in action, so they have a little bit more comfort in writing a check and supporting your campaign when you run. A lot of women who serve, particularly in the legislature, start as an appointee. A lot of women who serve in Congress and our congressional de delegation started as an appointee. And so I think that's another way. One of the things women tend to not do that I think men do a better job at, they strategize. Men are very strategic. They, when they decide I'm going to be governor, they've decided that like 15 years ago, and they are every move they're doing is getting to be governor of California. You know, there's a saying in the Capitol, you go up to a woman and say, you should run for governor. Well, I haven't done this, 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 and this. I'm not qualified. You go up to the, a guy, you know what, you're right. I'm just going to go over and I'm going to apply and I'm going to sign and do the paperwork right now. So I think part of it is finding other opportunities to show your leadership, especially in communities like San Francisco, LA, San Diego, because they are so political. And you really have to build up those, that reputation. And then it becomes easier to raise the money and to be successful in politics. Kula. Sure, and that's actually, just wanted to add to that. She made a really great point. Um, so our Sacramento Vice President of BOAPA, actually, she went through the um, training program that our state puts on, and she just got appointed to the Sacramento Housing and Redevelopment Agency Board, and she wants to run for office, and she's been, because of going through, she's very strategic about the things that she needs to do as well. Um, I think Ty is, what, 26? Six, you know, really young, and she's got appointed, and so she's really building her por portfolio as well, and so she's plotting that out. So that's by by going on a getting uh, appointed to a board or a commission, and that's something that's really really overlooked, and it's something that we're trying to. We always post openings that are happening, like on the first five and things like that, so you can really start to build your portfolio. Great question. All right, next question at the mic. Hi, um, my name is Monica, and I just want to start by thanking you all for being here. I think it's very important, and obviously for all the young women uh, women in the audience. Um, we've talked a lot about challenges you, that you've all faced, um, and sort of um, from you know external, people asking you to wait your turn, step down, things like that. Um, but I'm wondering sort of just general life advice, but also as it relates to politics, um, what is um, you know, a challenge or the lowest point that you faced where it really just shook you to your core, you really made you question everything, and how did you bounce back or sort of what advice did you get to get yourself out of that mindset that you were in? That's a good question. Who would like to take that one? Rachel will start. So I uh, sit on the State Board of Optometry. All of you that wear glasses, contact lenses, I'm your girl. Um, I'm a public member, and uh, when I first got appointed to the board, I was actually asked by the governor to, to, to sit on this board. One of my passions is children. And um, I said, let's introduce a bill in the legislature to have children have a comprehensive eye exam before they start school, right? It didn't sound like rocket science to me. Let's make sure kids can see, because if they can't see, they can't be successful in school. And we know 40% of children, especially children of color, have vision problems, so we wanted to catch it early. You'd think I was killing puppies and unicorns when it got to the legislature, and it was really hard. Um, I'm not a lobbyist. Um, my husband actually is, has been a lobbyist. I actually had a newfound respect for him after this because I hated it. I mean, I because I was so passionate about it, I was so passionate particularly 
for children who are in underserved communities. And when I was going up against these, you know, these lobbyists, these really high paid special interest groups who killed the bill, um, I was devastated. And I actually called the governor's office and, and uh, I have some friends, I was in tears, I'm like, I don't wanna do this anymore. I'm done, I'm out, I've got other things to do. But then I realized, you know what, then you're letting them win. And so instead, I took that anger and put it into, okay, guess what, I'm, gonna, I'm here till 2019, that's when my term expires, so if I have to do this every single year, I will. And so we have a bill again this year. Um, you know, Assemblywoman Autumn Burke is the author and she's passionate about it and, and we're, we're moving forward and I will keep doing it. But, you know, that's part of politics is that you go into politics a lot of times because you want to solve a problem and you want to make a difference. You know, I don't think anyone wants to sign up to get, you know, things said about them and show up in the paper with things that aren't true. So you do it because you have a passion and when you get that obstacle, you gotta figure out how you're gonna get around it and you really do have to dig deep. And fortunately, I have people around me who said, you know, yes, keep going. And I think about the people that you will affect that you will never even know. And so I think that's the, the point that I came away with, now talk to me in a little while, it's the bill's up in committee in a, a couple weeks, so, um, you know, I may be back saying, okay, but, you know, you just keep doing it, and that's how you really make change. Amanda. Um, so, presidential campaign, 2016, <laughs> um, it's not actually the day, but it's the day that um, Trump started talking about Mexicans as rapists and criminals. And as the highest ranking Latina on the campaign, I called my mom and I said, I can't believe this is where we are. I can't believe this is where our country is. And, and I'm assuming you, this is Hillary Clinton's it campaign. It is you Hillary Clinton's campaign. And I kind of expected my mom to be like, it's okay, mija, it's gonna get better, don't worry. Yeah, not my mom who had been through the civil rights movement, right, who was a farm worker, who remembers Cesar Chavez walking down the marches, her response was, yep, now it's your turn. Now it's your turn. Fast forward, the awful night <laughs> of not winning that election. It's 2.30 in the morning, and some folks are going to the hotel, and I said to my husband, I have to go home because I have to talk to my kids. I have to be the one that tells them this. I still get a little emotional. And I woke up that morning, I maybe slept an hour and a half, because I knew they were gonna get up, and all of a sudden I walked to the kitchen table and they sort of looked at me, they're like, Mama, how was it? Right, and they saw my face. They immediately start crying, because they just saw my face. And I said, no, 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 no. You're gonna go to school because it's your turn. And you're gonna tell all your friends that we're gonna make sure that love wins. I know what's ahead. I, I knew all too well that night what we would go through as a country. And I said, but you're gonna go and it's gonna be your turn too. And I think about that moment because that's what this is about. Right? At those moments, where do you find that we're going to go on? And in fact, if in those moments you realize that's when you've got to step up, 
That's what this is about. That's how I found my power to do the things that I do. Is in Spanish, it's ya es tu tiempo. Right? Now it's our turn. Thank you. Next question. Hello, my name is Alan Young, and I'm the proud father of three daughters. I used to have jet black hair. <laughs> I don't anymore. Thank you, first of all, for your empowering words. Um, I wish my three daughters could be here tonight. Um, they're 11, 18, and 20. They're, they are more courageous and stronger and intelligent than I will ever be. And I say that as I'm bragging, not as foe being humble. However, there's always a however, I was taken aback when one of my daughters, not the 11 year old, my 18 or 20 year old, I won't put her on blast as the kids say, they didn't vote. They didn't vote. They have strong female folks in their family, pretty decent dad, but they didn't vote. Um, I've heard the same thing over the last uh, 25 years as a teacher and then principal with uh, both men and women, kind of this apathy. My question is, is you, you all seem pretty, pretty keen on empowering people, both men and women, is how do you fire them up like I'm fired up to get them to vote, let alone run for office? Please give me your words of wisdom. Um, slip me the answer. I'm curious, when you, do you ask them, you know, why didn't they vote, and what, what do they tell you? What are the reasons why they didn't? Thank you for asking that. I, um, the daughter in question that didn't vote said, <coughs> Ramona, oh no. She said it wouldn't matter. It just wouldn't matter, and I did. I used all my Jedi mind tricks and not tricks to say, it does matter. Are you aware of what might happen if so-and-so, I can't even say his name, um, becomes our president? Because that could never happen, right? And um, I, I tried every which way. So yeah, how do you get apathetic non-voters to get fired up and vote and be more involved. Kula. Um, so there's a couple ways. Um, for me, I like to talk about a little bit about my story, how I come from a country where, you know, there's dictators and your vote really doesn't matter and people are blatantly stuffing ballot back boxes and, and we have the right in this country to actually be able to exercise something. Um, but I think more important is to ask your daughter, what is it that is important to you, right? What kind of environment do you want to live in? What kind of neighborhood do you want to live in? Um, what kind of jobs do you want to have when you graduate from college? Like, thinking about even student loans, right? What kind of administration do you want to have and how much student loans you're going to have to pay back based on the policies that they have, right? What kind of environment, like you really, I would ask her, what, what is important to you? 
um, in, in terms of as an 18 year old, if, if you're gonna go to college and you're thinking about how good your college is, the kind of professors you have and all of those things, right? And I also think it's really important, I don't know if you did this, but even be able to go to the, to the to capital and city council meetings and see literally how local things happen, like from the potholes to the type of schools that you're in. Like all of those things, I think really being able to show um, that these people are making decisions that really affect every aspect of your, of, of your life, from the, your parking tickets, from the way zoning happens. I mean, everything, it's so really important. Um, and then that elections can also be decided. One of the races I was a part of was won by like, God, I think like 40 something votes, you know, as well. So I would go from that aspect, just starting to ask, you know, what is really important to you? I think my, so my nephew is 14 now and he's been reading all the news about gun violence and black boys and getting afraid of cops. And so talking about, well, who are these people that are in office and what do they stand for and asking them specific questions, being involved in that sense. So that's what I would try and get at. Rachel? So you're a teacher and a principal? In a former life, yes. In a form um, I'm a big proponent that we need to ch teach civics in school again. That, you know, we don't. I, and I'm actually surprised we do. I do a lot of advocacy training and civics training for adults, for business leaders, because they don't understand how government, just basically how government works. To your point, they don't understand the impact that it has on your life. Um, you know, I think part of it too is looking how we vote and making it easier for people to vote. Um, I think Sacramento County in this upcoming election is doing all mail ballot, you know, as an experiment. They're one of a few counties in the state that are doing it. Um, but part of it is I try to find um, women, in my case, women candidates that are running campaigns that are authentic and finding women candidates who are running civil campaigns. I think a lot of what I hear among women and men in the state of California, they, they're turned off from voting because the level of campaigning has gotten to an all-time low. I mean, I, I'm in politics and I get tired of it. Um, and I think that's part of it, is that we need to have a movement to bring civility back to politics. And I think when you bring that civility back, that that's gonna inspire more people to wanna vote and have their voices heard. Um, and I think it's, it's being able to, to expose young women and men to candidates who have a vision, a positive vision, of what they wanna do for their community. Um, but, you know, I have two daughters. They're not voting age yet. Um, but, you know, my husband takes them to the polls. I vote absentee. I sit them down. We go through the ballot. It's, you know, election night at our home is a holiday. I mean, we have the returns going. And, you know, so, so we try to make it fun um, so that they understand the importance. But to your point, too, it's um, taking them to the Capitol, taking them to city council. You know, they also see that, you know, my husband and I are engaged in our community. You know, I serve as an appointee, he's on nonprofit boards. It's just part of our DNA, and so hopefully that helps inspire. But it's hard to do, and it's heartbreaking when <laughs> you see people giving away their voice, and that's what they're doing when they're not voting. Amanda. Thank you. Um, I'll just add a little bit to this, which I was a high school teacher. That was my first public service job. And I do think there's some onus on political leaders to actually go to high schools and talk to them 
and not talk at them, have a little fun with them, right? I mean, there was no way I could be a good teacher if I wasn't sort of like on the basketball court with them, right? And I think there, we've got to have a lot more fun as politi political leaders because some of that is reaching into communities that think it's not fun or it's all negative and they're not real people. And so I think there is a question here, which is what are our political leaders doing to reach the 17, 16, 17, and 18 year olds who are gonna be entering the workforce, who are gonna be going to college. And if you don't see them and they're not there and they're not tangible, it's really hard for a high school kid. Um, so I think there's some onus, in addition to all the other things that were said, but there's some onus on political leaders to go and actually go to the football game or go to the basketball game and have a little bit of fun. So I'm, I'm gonna uh, ask the last question. It kind of ties into what you all uh, replied to this great question. It ties into um, the hashtags, you know, Me Too and We Said Enough and Women's March, all this stuff that's been happening since November 2016 that, that has been in the news. And I think I read somewhere where, you know, we don't want this to lose steam. You know, we don't want this to be another trend. Um, the, the running for office, not another trend. So I guess in terms of just getting the women heard, women running for office, getting more involved, have, making a stand, having a say, um, all seems to tie together. So my question for all of you panelists is, you know, how do we as, as, as women and men, as voters out in Californians, help make that happen? You know, keep the oxygen in the room. Uh, keep these movement movements from losing steam and make positive change. You know, besides, you know, voting, obviously, but what else? Any specific things that uh, you either have mentioned and, or have not been mentioned? I know it's a kind of a open-ended question, but just like specifics, I guess I always like to ask, what can we do as just voters and residents to make sure that you know, this keeps on going. Kula. Um, so I was recently at a State of Black Women Forum where we talked about a lot. It was a really emotional and intense day, but one of the things we talked about was, we talked about people used to, we do like Bible study, right? You have, you know, Wednesday nights is Bible study, right? I feel like civic engagement needs to be an iterative process and where it's something that it's not just, even to the point about your daughters, it's not just something that we say it's time to vote or this is a lobby day, but it's really ingrained. Um, as you asked that question, I was thinking about, for some reason, girls who code, right? People trying to get young girls into coding in an environment that is mostly male and starting at a young age and really building programs that it starts that way and you're building this pipeline from age like six or seven and you're building a curriculum around that it's a study it's an iterative process and i think that's how you don't lose steam because what happens is it's not a trend it's something that is ingrained in you that is part of what you talked about even being in school and civic engagement in school not just one class but something that's really really showed as 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 important that you work on throughout your life amanda i think it's creating a path to building something and the example of that, when I worked at the city of San Jose, we actually, it was a program called Strong Neighborhoods, where you brought the community together and you said, what are the top 10 priorities? 
And then over the course of three years, the community actually came up with the top 10, and then we worked down that number, right? One, two, and three. All of a sudden, the project wasn't the mayor's project or the city council's project, it was the community's project. And I think that's the part of where we've really gotten away in our politics or in our governing, is all of a sudden electeds win, and then it's okay, thank you, I will bring the policies to you. As opposed to really bringing people along the process. And I think with new mediums now, where you can actually communicate what we're doing on a policy level, that kind of interaction and engagement will make it feel like it's everybody else's idea, not, some, not something an elected official tells you to do. And that's where I think we need a, our next phase of actually government political engagement is that people feel like they actually created this policy. So on just specifically the Me Too stuff, we've got to actually have real policies that people have put forward because of this movement, whether it's policies or leaders in place because of the movement. There has to be something that is a bow tie to this is what we did. So I look forward to that kind of governing. Regina. Yeah, so I really agree that it's important for people to feel engaged in the process and then to see a tangible return on what it is that they've been doing, the contribution that they've been making. And, you know, again, I think that we're in a moment of opportunity, but also a moment of some peril. Um, I'm really heartened that, you know, a lot of women have said, okay, first we marched, now we're running. Uh, the next step is to say, now we're running, and then we're going to be winning and governing. And that's where we need everyone's help. You know, I think that there is a bit of a, a sense of a loss of urgency or maybe a normalization of this new normal that we're all living in in society, that some of the initial shock um, from 2016 has worn off for some people a bit. And um, it's really important for you know, all of you to go get your friends, your colleagues, your neighbors, your family members re-energized and make it clear that you know, we're now coming up into the home stretch to really make some changes that are gonna be very impactful. Um, and you know, we need to be running the strongest campaigns we can. Uh, sometimes that will be an actual victory at the polls. That's the, the accomplishment. Um, but sometimes maybe it is building a network, you know, building a network, training people in the community in new skills, and then laying that groundwork for the next person who runs. Um, we've already seen in our campaign, for example, we started a very unconventional house party program extremely early. And I have a great volunteer who runs the house parties. She's amazing. A lot of the other volunteers come out and help with them. And we do a ton of them. And then she recently went and trained the house party coordinator for someone, a woman who's running for assembly in our area. And all of a sudden, having house parties in our region is a thing. It's a thing people do. The question isn't, have you ever considered having a house party for a political candidate? It's, oh, well, I just had a Regina party. Now I better have a Jackie party for the assembly race. <laughs> or, you know, it's really about normalizing that um, and getting people in the habit of integrating, I think, their interests, their social lives, their professional lives in with politics and governing. And so, you know, certainly I think helping us run and win is very important. Um, but also, you know, really getting involved from the grassroots app and helping us build those lasting networks and mechanisms of organizing that work for every community. Um, because every place is different, but that's how we'll make lasting change and people will see a real return on the efforts that they've put out. And Rachel, you have the last word. You know, I'm gonna take a different spin. I think it's time for us to have critical conversations throughout California. Um, one of the things we do 
with California Women Lead, we have a um, small group. We bring women together from all different backgrounds, um, different political parties, and we have these incredible conversations that's not a Twitter feed, it's not a tweet, it's not a Facebook post. You know, I think that we've gotten away from communicating with each other. Um, I even think candidates have gotten away from really communicating. You communicate through your social media, you communicate through um, your mail pieces, through a 30-second ad, but you see very few candidates really taking the time to go in and have true conversations with people, especially with people they may not agree with. And when you have those critical conversations, that's where you see that light change where people will say, you know, I appreciate that they valued my opinion, and maybe I will vote for them because at least they listened to me. And especially when you see the fastest growing quote unquote party in California is actually no party preference. Um, I think any good candidate is gonna understand that in an open primary, where you have to be able to communicate and have these conversations across party lines, that's the only way we're gonna keep these conversations going. And I personally think that women have a different skill set that they can be a little bit more successful in having those critical conversations. Um, and when you sit in them, they're, you know, they're amazing. I mean, I leave those small group, and we've done them all over, energized. Because you talk about important issues, immigration, homelessness, whatever you want to talk about, but you suddenly get this diversity of thought and you realize that we actually have more in common than we do, than we don't. And when you realize and you can find that, that common thread, that's how you're really gonna change policy and make our state better and I think inspire more, especially younger people to wanna to get engaged in the political arena. So I personally think this was an amazing conversation, amazing questions from the audience, amazing women on the panel. Good luck to all of you at election year 2018. It's definitely gonna be an interesting one to watch. And thank you all for coming. Thanks again. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. Tonight's Policy in a Pint conversation was held on March 21, 2018 at Arcade Underground in Old Sacramento. Many thanks to our panelists, Regina Bateson, Kula Koenig, Rachel Michelin, and Amanda Renteria for joining us. Thanks to our host, Arcade Underground, and a special thanks to Christina Acosta for managing this event. To Eileen Zhang of Ignite California, Sergio Lopez, Emily Lindsay Severns, thanks for helping us put this panel together. Special thanks to California Groundbreakers board directors Ken Barnes, Scott Eggert, Alicia Lewis, and J.E. Pano for volunteering at the event. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. <laughs>